0: Genesis chapter 19. We're going to be looking at some, uh, over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at some of the incidents in Genesis that we didn't get a chance to look at before when we were getting the, the scope of it. Um, my reasoning for that is uh, at some point I'm not going to be here because we're going to be having a baby and so I figure we're going to do some one-of sermons for a while uh, while I try to figure out exactly what's going on um, with this. So, We were um, working on that. I told her, you know, this morning I said, well, if you want to go into labor, it'll make a great story about how you went into labor at church. And she said, well, would you want Caden to help, or what do you... (laughs) So apparently she was not as up for that as I was, Uh, so it's just a... we're, We're negotiating this, negotiating this, but she says she doesn't have a whole lot of control over it. I don't know. We are looking at a story today that maybe you're familiar with. But first, I want to give you some kind of a historical thing. There's a place called Tal el-Hammam in Israel. Uh, Tal is a mounded dome. A tel is a city built of layers on top of each other, so sometimes you'll see it called Tel el-Hammam. But what's interesting about it, well, there's a lot of things that are interesting about it. Can we go to our next slide? I want to make some point. One, it's an 89-acre city from about 1800 B.C., it's got 12-foot-thick walls, and the walls are 100 feet high. That's very interesting. What's more interesting is that right in the middle of the city, uh, in between where it was inhabited during the Bronze Age, the 1800s, and then where a small settlement was built on it later, there are 10 feet of ash. Let's see if we can get some more information here. I want Here's uh, what the archaeologist that's over it wrote. He wrote, The ash and destruction from Talal Hammam's terminal middle bronze II stratum ranges from half a meter to more than two meters thick over both the upper and lower Tals. Embedded in these layers are broken and tumbled mud bricks, smashed and charred pottery vessels, and a typical assortment of day-to-day objects, all violently churned into an ash-filled matrix. I want you to imagine this. Imagine a uh, from, in some places, half a meter, so two feet thick. In some places, uh, over two meters. I read that in some places it's a full ten feet thick, but six feet is a a normal height for this thing of broken pieces of pottery, ash, and just uh, just destruction all at once. And the next slide, please. Let me show you this. For the human skeletons covered by architectural debris, with limbs twisted out of normal position and for some thrown on their faces with hyperextended joints surrounded in the matrix by human bone scattered such pieces such as pieces of ribs the ends of long bones and skull fragments so in the midst of the debris they found human skeletons twisted and uh, their joints hyperextended twisted backwards and then pieces of bone like they were scattered by a mortar just Scattered out pieces of bone. Uh, We've got some pictures, I believe, next. One a map? There it is on the north side of the Dead Sea in the Jordan River Valley, on the east side of the Jordan River. That may be important to you. Next slide, please. Here it is, the uh, architectural thing. They have to dig down. There is Middle Bronze II. There is a massive city. That's Abraham's time. A massive city. It's an 89-acre city. And then there is nothing for 700 years. And then there's a smaller settlement. Here's the bones. See, there's just, you see the the toes bent up, broken and charred femurs, human bones scattered. People are just laying dead where they were found. Now, uh, what is this? What does this all have to do with? Well, uh, Tal el-Hammam is believed by a number of scholars to be the location of a large biblical city from the day of Abraham, known to you and I, not as Talah but as Sodom. Um, You know, there's not 100% sure. There's some pottery there that is a little later than we would expect for it to be Sodom, but that may have been just kind of nomads using it for shelter over time. What we have is a city right on the side of the Dead Sea that was burned up in an instant, people still wherever they were completely crushed, broken violently. And the whole region, this whole area around this massive city, destroyed in an instant. Now cities that are destroyed by earthquakes, one, uh, people are not burned up. Two, they rebuilt it. There's actually evidence that this city was rebuilt in the past by an earthquake. But here we have a city that was completely destroyed and basically nobody lived there for 700 years. That's a pretty... Pretty dramatic destruction for what was probably the largest city in the Jordan River Valley at that time. Now, it's kind of interesting. What is it that could have caused this metropolis to suddenly vanish? Now, nobody, I told you the walls were 10 feet thick. Nobody came and invaded this city. The walls were 100 feet high. They didn't just abandon this city and say, you know, we're going to move somewhere nicer. In an instant, it was destroyed. Now, a couple different ways we can think about this. but I want you to imagine, if you had told the people in Sodom in 1860 B.C., that by 1850 B.C., I'm rounding the dates, we don't know exactly, but that by 1850 B.C., they would be completely demolished. Nobody would have believed it. (laughs) You never believed that an empire that powerful, a city-state that powerful could be crushed. But it was. And I'm going to tell you that likewise, everything in this world that we think is so permanent and so important is going to come crashing to a stop, (laughs) just like Sodom. I think I told you before about the man who realized he was getting too attached to his possessions And so he got a label maker and made a bunch of labels and stuck it on everything. And all the labels said, soon to be burned. (laughs) We do not get to keep things. We think that these things are ours. And we get so attached to this world, we hold so tight to it, that it doesn't do us any good. It's a tragedy. I may have told you before about this true story from the Great Fire of Chicago. In this, in this fire, there was a, a woman who was standing outside. You know, the whole city was going up in flames. Uh, there was a woman standing down saying, my baby's inside, my baby's inside. And a firefighter, bravely, you know, covered up his mouth, ran inside the building where it was too dangerous really to go, rickety, and just it was already coming down. It was too late for anybody to go in. He ran inside, and he climbed the flight of stairs. And he looked down in the crib, he reached down, and he scooped it up, and pulled it down. And he ran down and was able to just barely escape this burning house with his life. And as he pulled this bundle of blankets out of his shirt and handed it to the mother, she pulled it back and found her daughter's doll. That's a true story. But it's also the true story of many of us. How many of us risk everything to grab onto the toys of this world while the things that really matter are lost? All the people in Sodom were so attached to everything that they had, and then in an instant, it was gone. What was the problem? Can I have the next slide, please? Ezekiel 16, verses 49 and 50. Behold, This was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. What was the problem of Sodom? Pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hands of the poor and needy. Let me ask you, do you know any countries, any places, that are marked by pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness? Now, I I just see you can imagine If you you can't think of anywhere, then I invite you to go outside, (laughs) look around, (laughs) turn on your TV. You know, we have people that live lives of such opulence and such luxury, even the people we consider middle class. Can you imagine if you could go back in time and you could show somebody in the 1920s uh, what we would consider middle class in 2016. <laughs> the average uh, the average family in poverty has two cars, three TVs. You know, <laughs> we just don't our, we have such luxury and idleness. <laughs> you know, and I, I'm not going to bore you with the statistics about how many hours uh, the average American spends watching TV. Uh, but suffice it to say that when you tell me you don't have time to read your Bible, I don't believe you. We spend so much time. Now, of course, it's even less uh, TV because at least when you watch TV, you know, okay, I've seen this many TV shows. I've been here for a certain amount of time. But in our society, what is it? where does all of our time go? <laughs> and you've got your cell phone in your hand and you don't know how much time you've wasted until you look up. <laughs> you say, wow, I've just, I've just blown a lot of time. Idleness. And you say, well, that's not the sin of Sodom. Let me tell you, Jesus said, out of the abundance of your heart. <laughs> you see, that the, the problems we're going to read about in Genesis 19 that Sodom and Gomorrah had, and Gomorrah is kind of like the Fort Worth to Sodom's Dallas. It's, they're, they're very close to each other. Um, the, the problems that they had did not start with what we're going to read in Genesis 19. It started with this attitude of, I am God, <laughs> that came from pride, fullness of bread, and idleness. They did not strengthen the hands of the poor and needy. They didn't care about those who didn't have because they had. I was uh, re- listening to a, a radio show um, going through different things in uh, U.S. history. There's uh, the guy who, the host of Face the Nation, does a radio show, John Dickerson. There's a radio show where he does just these little vignettes from campaign history. So he did the Andrew Jackson campaign and how the, the Andrew Jackson uh, beat down the caucus system because he was losing and different things. And uh, you know, talking about uh, how Ronald Reagan stole uh, Jimmy Carter's debate notes so he was able to beat him in the debate in 1980, uh, and different things like that. Um, but one thing that was really, really interesting. Uh, was several... Several things that were really interesting, but one thing that uh, caught my attention is the the ongoing cycles of wickedness. You know, we always want to think that the the problems that are around are new problems, <laughs> but you look, and in the early eighteen hundreds, you had people buying votes and <laughs> bribing each other with offices. Uh, the there were not enough votes. Maybe some of you are familiar that when uh, in the election uh in the early 1800s one of the early elections that nobody had enough votes in the electoral college to win the presidency so it went to the house um henry clay didn't have enough votes to win and so he got everybody to vote for one of the candidates on his behalf he convinced everybody to do that and then the first act of the president who won was to appoint him secretary of state you say corruption is not a new thing. But the problem is that corruption is creeping. When you build layers of corruption on top of each other and layers of not caring about corruption on top of each other, eventually you've got a massive tower ready to tumble. <laughs> That's what happened in Sodom. It started out they didn't care about the poor and needy. One interesting thing was they, they talked about George Romney going and doing a ghetto tour is what he called it. You couldn't call it that today. Politicians today wouldn't do it. Um, he went from poor neighborhood to poor neighborhood, uh, talking to people who opposed him politically to ask about their concerns. Um, you don't have that today, right? <laughs> people don't. People don't do that. People don't. The pe- people that are running for office today don't go into the poor neighborhoods. They go into the upper middle class neighborhoods and you know pat themselves on the back, elbowing with the common people. But what happens? We have lack of concern for the poor and needy, marked by our own pride, fullness of bread, and idleness. And then what happens? In the, verse 50. And they were haughty. That's where it comes from. Pride. They were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore I took them away as I saw good. Where does the abomination come from? It comes from the pride. Or you look at some of the major sins in our society today and you say, how did this happen? Pride. (laughs) Once you've got a heart that says, I'm God, I make up my own mind, I come up with my own decisions, you've seen that heart in people. You've seen people that get to that point where they say, I've got everything I need, I don't need anybody, I don't need anything. And once somebody has that attitude, there is nothing that they won't do. And that's exactly what happened here in Genesis 19. Let me give you a little bit of the immediate context. You remember, this is a year before Isaac is born, to help you pin it down in your chronology, now that you know the book of Genesis. A year before Isaac is born, the uh, Lord comes to Abraham and tells him, in one year from now, your son's going to be born. But I won't hide from Abraham what I'm about to do. I've heard this outcry from Sodom, and I'm going to go see if it's as bad as I've heard. He's using this... uh, this anthropomorphism. That means that God, even though God already knows, he speaks to Abraham as if he does not know so Abraham can understand his thought process. This isn't the Bible contradicting itself. Uh, When the Bible says that with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, God will deliver his people, we don't believe God has an arm and a hand. When God changes his mind, we know God's not really changing his mind. He's showing that this prayer is the reason that God had his mind made up. That's what's happening here. So, Abraham says, you won't destroy the righteous along with the wicked. He says, if there's 50 righteous people in the city, won't you spare this 89-acre metropolis? And God says, yes, if there's 50, I'll spare the city. And Abraham says, but what if it's only missing five? You wouldn't destroy the city for a lack of five. What if there are 45? And God says, if there's 45 righteous people in the city, I will not destroy it. And he works his way down until finally uh, God says, "If there's five righteous people in the city, I will spare the city." Five righteous people in Sodom, and it's spared. Now Abraham knew that his nephew Lot had gone to live there. Lot had looked out, and Abraham, when they both had too much to live together, Abraham said to Lot, "You pick which way you want to go, and I'll go the other way." And Lot saw the big city life and said, "Oh, that looks good to me." I. He pitched his tent towards Sodom. And so Lot has been living in this city for years. Abraham knows it. And Abraham says, surely by now, I'm imagining this is what he says. Surely by now, Lot has reached five people. Surely Lot and his family can spare the entire city. Let's look and see. Genesis chapter 19, verse 1. Uh, Three angels, the great escape, the fall of Sodom and Gomorrah. The three angels had come to Abraham, one of them, the angel of the Lord, Jesus, stayed behind while the other two angels go into Sodom. And there came two angels to Sodom and even. and Lot sat in the gate of Sodom, and Lot, seeing them, rose up to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. So, Lot sitting in the gate, so that doesn't mean anything to you and me, but The gates were the places where court cases were decided. The gates were the the city hall of the day. This is where the important people were. Suffice it to say, Lot had gotten used to life in Sodom. And I'm going to not be able to slowly unveil this the way that I would like to. The New Testament compares in Jude life in Sodom to life in the world. The filth of Sodom and the destruction of Sodom corresponds to the way that God's going to change the world, the way he's going to overthrow the world with fire. That's in the good Jude. So i just go ahead and immediately say, there are a lot of Christians who are at home in the world, who sit in the city gates. You get awfully comfortable sometimes. We forget that we are foreigners and strangers, pilgrims passing through. We get accustomed to the ways of the world. You say, well, everybody does it. Look at this. So he, though, still has this hospitality. So he sees these men come in, and he bows down before them. Verse 2. And he said, Behold now, my lords, turn in, I pray you, into your servant's house, and tarry all night, and wash your feet, and you shall rise up early and go on your ways. You know, they didn't have uh, Motel 6. They said, Come into my house. That was standard eastern hospitality. It was important to take in people. But the, and they said, nay, but we will abide in the street all night. That's, that's rude. You're not supposed to turn down an invitation like that. But these two men say, we, we, no, we're going to stay out here. We're not going to go in. Now, as the reader, we know maybe the reason for that is they are going around Sodom, investigating for Sodom's destruction. They say, we've got work to do tonight. And he pressed upon them greatly. And they turned in unto his house and entered into his house. And he made them a feast and did bake unleavened bread, and they did eat. Lot pressures them into staying. Now, again, as a reader, we kind of wonder why. Why? What does Lot know about them being out in the streets at night that makes him so insistent that they come inside? He knows a lot more than we do at this point, but there's something that makes him pressure and then he hastily prepares for them cakes of unleavened bread. But before they lay down, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, compassed the house round, both old and young, all the people from every quarter. So before they had even gotten to sleep, they'd come in, they'd eaten, and now the house is surrounded by men. Both old and young is a, an expression that is like heavens and earth. It, you use the two extremes to mean everybody in the middle. There's a whole wide range of ages from every part of the city. It doesn't mean that literally every human being in the city was surrounding Lot's house, but it means there was no kind of person who was not there. Young and old and middle-aged and rich and poor, different from different parts of the city, they're all there gathered around. And you, wonder, you say, Why? Well, they called unto Lot and said unto him, Where are the men which came into thee this night? Bring them out unto us, that we may know them. Say, so, oh, well, they want to get to know them. They want to have a little meet and greet. Well, no. If they'd wanted to do that, then they would have offered hospitality when they came to the city gates. <laughs> know them is the same meaning as in Genesis 4. Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived, and buried forth the son. This is they want to come and have carnal knowledge of them and say, bring them out. Now, there's several layers of problems here. You know, we cannot, cannot ignore any of them. On one hand, some people will say, well, here, of course, you have these. this group of men who uh, wants to, to commit a gang rape, and that's absolutely true. That's exactly what's going on. Uh, Two, they want Lot to violate hospitality. Lot, by inviting them into his home, had offered them his protection. And that's absolutely true. Uh, But at the same time, Jude says that they went after strange flesh. And so the homosexual nature of this is also a key part of the problem. So where does this come from? Where does this attitude come from? They were haughty. They were proud. They said, I want that. Now I'm going to take it. Nobody's going to tell me no. That's where the, this, all their attitude came from. They see these men come in. They say, we want them. We're going to have them. It gets, it gets more exciting, I promise. And Lot went out at the door unto them and shut the door after him. So Lot went out to them, shut the door, and said, I pray you, brethren, do not do so wickedly. He said, don't behave like this. Don't treat these men like this. Watch Lot in verse 8. Behold now, I have two daughters which have not known man. Let me, I pray you, bring them out unto you, and do you to them as is good in your eyes. Only unto these men do nothing, for therefore they came under the shadow of my roof. He says... Don't rape these two men. I have two virgin daughters that you can have instead. And now some people say, well, you know, he was marrying them all for something. That is not what happened. That's not what he was happening here. Uh, you read in Judges chapter 19, there was a man who uh, sent his concubine out. And uh, it says they raped her all night and they, he found her dead in the morning. That's what he was offering up his daughters for. But then we read in Peter that it says Lot's righteous soul was vexed at the evil of the city. What I want you to understand here is that Lot was a saved man who had been in Sodom far too long. <laughs> he had, it grieved him on the inside, and he said, oh, I'm just not comfortable here. But he was very comfortable there <laughs> to live there, and his actions had taken on the stench of Sodom. And so he says, look, this is bad. He said, (laughs) said, my choices are rape or rape and violation of hospitality and homosexuality. So I'm going to pick the lesser of two evils, and I'm going to send out my daughters. I don't need to tell you that God's instruction when faced with the lesser of two evils is neither. (laughs) The Bible says that there's no temptation that's overtaken you, but such as has come to man. But in every temptation, God provides a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. There is no situation where you have to sin ever. But Lot is not willing to do anything difficult because you notice Lot does not offer himself. <laughs> he said, well, I'm just out of options. All I've got here is these two men and my two daughters. He, he's not willing to go out there and fight them himself. He's choosing who he's going to offer up, what he's going to give up. When we say, I don't have a choice, I've got to sin, it's because we're not willing to do anything that's going to hurt us. I want to pick the sin that's going to be least uncomfortable to me. But sin is sin. So Lot here says, I'm going to give my two daughters up. Because these men are under my protection." Verse 9, and they said, stand back. And they said again, this one fellow came in to sojourn, and he will needs be a judge. He said, this man came in, he's a stranger, he's not even from here, and now he's going to judge us. Said, yes, we're about to go in and uh, rape these two men and everything, but don't judge us. You don't have any right to judge us. Who are you? It's strange how unlike our modern world Sodom is. It's just like a different different planet. Don't judge me. I've got everything I need. I'm gonna do things my way. You know, I, think, I think it's been well said that the most commonly quoted verse in our modern world is not John 3:16, Matthew 7. Judge not, lest ye be judged. But of course, what's not quoted is um, the, the rest of the chapter, where he says, first, remove the log from your own eye, and then you will be able to see clearly to remove speck from your brother's eye. Uh, the Bible doesn't condemn saying something's wrong. The Bible condemns hypocr- hypocrisy. So maybe Lot didn't have any business judging them because he was a hypocrite who was ready to offer up his daughters. But this attitude of don't judge us, don't tell me what to do, is the heart of pride. And when you feel that in your heart, you feel that nobody's going to tell me what to do. You need to know that that is the deepest depth of depravity of which you are capable. Because once you give into that attitude of I'm the boss, there's nothing that will be kept from you. There is no sin you won't do once you decide that you determine right and wrong. There's no sin. Once you say, I've just got to do what I've got to do, there's nothing that will keep you. So that pride, that fullness of bread, that idleness, that self-sufficiency, that I am God, is absolute destruction. And so, when we look at our society, you can look at that from a, a broad range of things. Uh, of course, the, you know, marriage screams off the page here. Um... Yes, I'm living with my girlfriend, but don't you tell me what to do. What about God telling you what to do? Yes, I'm in this kind of relationship that the Bible calls sin, but don't tell me what to do. What about God telling you what to do? (laughs) Don't tell me how to live my life. And we see that attitude in churches. Nobody tell me what to do. They're always in my business. You know, they, they understand, there's, I'm using kind of extreme terminology because there is, there is a point where we start to hip, hypocritically interfere with other people's lives. However, there is a point where somebody, you need to have people in your life who can say to you, hey, you need to put the brakes on, you've got a problem. And if there's nobody in your life who can tell you what you're doing is wrong without you shutting them out of your life, you've got a huge problem. If there's no brakes, you've got a huge problem. They said, who made you a judge over us? He said, we will deal worse with thee than with them. You know what happens when you try to compromise, try to pick the lesser of two evils? You cannot control that fire once it starts. He said, well, we're going to have them and have you too, is what the townsmen say. We're going to treat you worse than we would have treated them. When you try to compromise with sin, you will fall in headlong. You cannot help it. There's no, there's no, there's not a stable place to stand. So he says, they pressed sore upon the man, even Lot, and came near to break the door, came up to beat the door down. But the men put forth their hand and pulled Lot into the house to them and shut to the door. So the angels reach out, grab Lot, pull him into the house and slam the door shut. You're almost reminded of the flood where Noah comes inside and God shuts the door of the ark. And suddenly he's protected by divine intervention. But he's not done yet. And they smote the men that were at the door of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves to find the door. The angels strike all these men blind. Now, not blind uh, in the sense of literally unable to see, blind in the sense of they cannot make sense of what they're seeing because this word for blindness is, the, is only, other, only ever used in the place where Elisha leads this entire army up to Samaria. They're not actually blind, but they're blind because they can't see. <laughs> Again, sin does not make it so that your eyes do not input colors and shapes. It's so that you don't understand what you're seeing. That's what, he, that's what they do to them. It's not that they're in the dark. You know, Even if you suddenly blacked out and you are gathered around this house, you'd be able to find the door. It's that they look, and they do not understand. They look, and they don't see. That's the blindness that's described here. It's a metaphorical blindness. That's what sin does to you. (laughs) You look, and you can't see. You can't make sense of what you're seeing because your heart is so hardened. So they come, and they wore themselves out to find the door. Verse 12, And the men said unto Lot, Hast thou here any besides? son-in-law and thy sons and thy daughters and whatsoever thou hast in the city, bring them out of this place for we will destroy this place because the cry of them is waxen great before the face of the Lord and the Lord hath sent us to destroy it. They say, get everybody that you know out of here because we're going to destroy it. Of course, this is when Lot finds out these are no ordinary men that he has taken into his house. <laughs> The so destruction's coming, so grab hold of everybody that you want to see. Get out of here. There are no five righteous men in this city. Of course, now, to make application, if you know that this world is coming down, that just like Sodom burned up in an instant, the world will be burned up in an instant with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet sound of God, what are you doing to grab a hold of everybody that you want to see, make it out of here alive? But maybe you'll get the same reso- response that Lot did. He said in verse 14, And Lot went out and spake unto his sons-in-law, which married his daughters, and said, Up, oh, get you out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But he seemed as one that mocked unto his sons-in-law. He said, Oh, he's not serious not that big of a deal. You were, That's so strange. But he was not capable of getting the severity of the situation across to them, and so they would not go. When you try to reach somebody, sometimes you face that, don't you? Sometimes you, you cannot convince them that everything that they hold dear could be taken from them in an instant. There are some people who know in their heads that they're going to die, but they don't know in their hearts that they're going to die. So they just say, oh, you're just, you know, you're just goofing around. And when the morning arose, then the angels hastened Lot, saying, Arise, take thy wife and thy two daughters which are here, lest thou be consumed in the iniquity of the city. They say, you are out of time to convince people. You need to grab onto the people that you've got and go, or you're going to be burned up too. And while he lingered, can you imagine that? These angels come in, your house has been surrounded, they have struck these people blind. And now they tell you, we're going to destroy the whole city. And Lot is here dragging his feet. I like it here. There has to be some way that you can spare the city. I am so comfortable. I've got my house, and I've got my friends, and I've got all these different things. And I just don't want to let it go. You heard that William Carey quote, he is no fool who gives up that which he cannot gain. He's no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. But how many of you, God has laid something on your heart, either salvation, either give up your sins. You know you're doing something wrong and you know you need to stop. You know that it's going to bring you ruin and you drag your feet. You linger in Sodom. You can smell the sulfur in the air. you just don't want to let it go. You're not saved. You know that if you died right now, you would plunge into hell, punished by God for all of your sins. And you see the cross there, but you linger. Maybe you are saved, and you know there are people you need to talk to. You know there's work that God has laid on you. You know you've got a responsibility. You know that that person will plunge into hell unless you go and talk to them and confront them over their sins. You know that they're not saved at all, or they've got a false assurance, or whatever it is, and you don't want to cause a stir. And so you linger. You say, well, that's such a ridiculous thing to do. It is. But there we are. He says, he lingered. And look, God finally does this. And while he lingered, the men, the angels, laid hold upon his hand and upon the hand of his wife and upon the hand of his two daughters the lord being merciful unto him and they brought him forth and set him without the city said if you're not going to come willingly i'm going to drag you <laughs> so the angels grab a hold of him and pull him out and yet verse 17 it came to pass when they had brought them forth abroad That he said, Escape for thy life. Look not behind thee, neither stay thou in all the plain. Escape to the mountain, lest thou be consumed. You've got to get out of here. You've got to get to the mountains. Go. And Lot said unto them, Oh, no, not so, my Lord. We've talked about this before. On the list of things, not to say, not so, Lord, is pretty high. God tells you to do something, you don't say, Well, I've got another plan. We've got another idea. I know that you said this is your plan for life. This is your plan for righteousness. This is your plan for success. But look, I've been thinking about this. God, I've been around the block a time or two. God says, I made the block. You <laughs> know, Very impressed with you. We, we think we're going to outsmart God. He says, God, I can't make it to the mountains. <laughs> this is it funny, verse 19. He says... Behold now, thy servant hath found grace in thy sight and thou hast magnified thy mercy which thou hast showed unto me in saving my life and I cannot escape to the mountain lest some evil take me and I die. He says, I don't have time to get to the mountains because I've been lollygagging in Sodom and now I just don't have time. (laughs) A lot of the problems we have are self-created, aren't they? And don't you think that the God who drug them out who struck the people with blindness, says, you know, I'll hold off for a little bit. He says, I'm just not going to make it. I don't have time to make it. He says in the, verse 20, Behold now, this city is near to flee unto, and it is a little one. Oh, let me escape thither. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. He says, there's just a little town over here. I know that uh, Sodom and Gomorrah are going to have to come down. I know Dallas and Fort Worth are going to have to come down, but just down the road. There's a little, little city. And let me go there because it's a little one. Now we need to notice the difference in Lot's thinking and Abraham's thinking. Abraham says, won't you spare the city if there's just a few righteous in there? Sodom says, there's not, or Lot says, there's not that many wicked people over there. You know, just, just let this one city get loose. And in the mercy of God, verse 21, and he said unto him, see, I have accepted thee concerning this thing, also that I will not overthrow this city for the which thou hast spoken. Haste thee, escape thither, for I cannot do anything till thou become thither. Therefore, the name of that city is called Zoar. But he runs, this little city, and they spare this little city for Lot's sake. For Lot's sake. We're talking about Lot. Lot, take my two daughters. Lot. The sun was risen upon the earth when Lot entered into Zoar. Then the Lord rained down upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Uh, Brimstone and fire is a figure of speech. Uh, It's like nice and warm. It doesn't mean they were, you know, Cold brimstones, then balls of fire. It means burning brimstone, sulfur. It's uh, nice and warm. doesn't mean that you're nice and also warm. It means that you're nicely warm. Here, burning sulfur coming down, dropping out of the sky, burning it up. Probably the kind of thing that would scatter bones and leave a six-foot layer of ash. Boom. Done. Now, again, there's nothing left. And when it comes to sin, when it comes to God's transformation of the world when he baptizes the world in fire. Be nothing like. Watch this verse 25. And he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and that which grew upon the ground. It's completely destroyed even the plants. Wiped them out. Because these cities were so wicked. We say, well that's not really fair, is it? I make a couple of very quick observations. One observation is these were so wicked that everybody in the city was getting ready to gang rape these two angels. It's pretty bad. Two, everybody that gets killed gets killed because God kills them. You know, you die because God allows you to die. Some people do it at a ripe old age in their sleep. Some people do it because God rains down fire and brimstone. You know, God kills them either way. And he does it in a way that's going to do the best good for your soul. <laughs> so He says, I want, you to, I want you to understand very clearly how I feel about pride, how I feel about self-righteousness, how I feel about all the, the sexual sins that stem out of a heart of pride. And he says, here's how I feel about it. Fire and brimstone. Burn up the plants. And, you know, sexual sin in our society is the one thing we really want to flirt with. You know, I know that I shouldn't do this. I know this is wrong, but I just want to, you know, that I told you before, teaching in a Christian high school, the, the question they always wanted to ask in Bible classes, how far is too far? It's the wrong question, isn't it? But we want to get as close to the edge as we can. That's, this is the, the flirtation with it. And this destruction that comes from that is sudden and swift. Here it he goes. The, uh, verse 26, but his wife looked back from behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. <laughs> Another group of people, when you try to reach people, try to pull people out of the world that's burning down around their ears, some of them say, just don't take you seriously. Some of them cannot let it go. They turn back. Her heart was still in sodom. And because her heart was in Sodom, her body being out of Sodom did not keep her from being encased in the ash. They um in the in cities that have been destroyed by volcanic eruptions, they found people encased in salt from the ash solidifying their body and everything. And it's almost like the destruction she would have faced in Sodom, she faced even though she was physically out of Sodom because her heart was still there. She turns back, shows where her heart is, and then frozen. Now, you can get physically out of behavior, you know, you can get in a, a better place. You say, oh, I'm coming to church, look, my body is here sitting on this pew. That's very impressive. I'm very proud of you. I've told you, they're, they're bolted down. You know We don't need you to hold it still. If your heart is still in Sodom, if your heart is still in the world, all those things don't matter. All those things don't matter at all. And so his wife there turned into a pillar of salt. She just couldn't let go. She couldn't repent. She couldn't turn from the sinful life that she enjoyed. And Abraham got up early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Lord. He goes back to the place where he'd been praying. And he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain and beheld, and lo, the smoke of the country went up as the smoke of a furnace. Let's imagine Abram's had this discussion. God's told him, you know, if there's five righteous people in the city, I'll spare it. And he goes out that morning and he sees a black streak of smoke across the sky. What's very interesting is we don't know if Abraham ever found out that Lot had survived. Lot is never recorded again in the pages of Genesis. But the smoke of its destruction rose up, and Abraham saw it. You just imagine the brokenness of his heart. It came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot dwelt. It's going to be our last verse, but I want you to get this. I told you before, you know, did he do this for Lot's sake? And kind of pointed out the strangeness of that. (laughs) Lot did not deserve to be rescued. He had gotten deeply entrenched in the world that he was in. He had gotten, he'd become a part of it. God had every right to sweep Lot away, along with the rest of Sodom. He was just like him. But do you know why he was spared? When Lot was a little boy, his dad died. And his uncle Abraham took him in and carried him from place to place. He was the adopted son of Abraham. God remembered Abraham and spared Lot. We read in the flood, it said God remembered Noah, and so he spared Noah. But that's not what happened to Lot. It's not God remembered Lot, so he spared Lot. If God had Lot on his mind, Lot would have been burned up in the city. But God remembered Abraham. And here you are, a resident of Sodom, sitting in the gate, very accustomed to this nice lifestyle you've got here in this world that God is destined to burn. You know how you get out of life? Not because God remembers you and says, you know, he's just a swell guy. But because God remembers the son of Abraham. Because God remembers Jesus' perfect work and because you have been adopted into his family. He says, I remember the seed of Abraham. I remember my promise and so I spare you. The question this morning is very, very plain. When God looks at you, when the burning comes down, because this world is so wicked, God cannot allow it to stand and maintain his justice. When God comes, Jesus comes back and makes a new heavens and a new earth. Will he be able to remember Abraham and so spare you? Or because you lingered and thought it wasn't serious? Or because you turned back and left your heart in the world, will you be left behind? You've got one very simple option. Believe God about what he says is going to happen, and run away. Say, Lord, I believe that you sent Jesus to die for me. I believe you're going to rescue me. And now I turn from my sin. I'm sorry for my sin, and I want to run the other way. You'll do that this morning if you say, God, I know I'm a sinner, but I want to turn from my sin and trust in Jesus. He will pluck you out. If you're a Christian, do not miss the duty that you have to grab people by the hand and do everything you can to pull them out of this world. But also understand, if you don't, it's not your fault that people refuse. But it is your fault if you don't tell them. Everybody's got their own free will, everybody's got their own heart. You say, well, my kids, you know, gone off. What did I do wrong? Well, you may not have done anything wrong. Lot's son in laws just wouldn't believe him. But if you don't try, their blood's on your head. So as Christians, You've got a responsibility when you realize this world is burning down to say, Lord, give me the strength, give me the wisdom to say what I need to say, to tell them how Jesus died for them and is ready to rescue them from this place. Let's stand as our musicians come forward and we have a hymn of invitation. I'd like to offer to you